Welcome to the Science and the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Nadia Popovich. Last week, you heard from Lee T. Guzovsky as part of our two podcast series on the anthropology of online worlds. Games are perfectly tuned and attuned with reward mechanisms to that which gives us our humanity. As promised, we bring you Dr. Thomas Malaby, professor of anthropology at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, as he tells us more about games. Thank you to the Academy for inviting me to speak to you today. This series is a really wonderful series in place here on virtual humanity. The encounter between digitally networked technology and our humanity is an extraordinarily important and complex event, but one which we are beginning to understand. Now, the talk I'm going to give you today is based in part on my research and subsequent book about Linden Lab, a company in San Francisco and the maker of Second Life, a virtual world. In the book, I attempt to understand this strange company that is trying to make this strange product that is supposed to actually make itself. And in many respects, what I found at Linden Lab was a reflection of the current moment when an increasing proportion of our digital lives is saturated, if not with games, then by increasingly game-like experiences, most fully realized in virtual worlds. These game-like experiences are architected quite intentionally by a generation of developers, many of which have come to see combining software development and game design as the path not only to vibrant online experiences, but in fact to a better world. Today I aim to shed light on our virtual humanity through a consideration of virtual worlds from an anthropological perspective. But in order to do that, I must say a few words about games. This is not only because so many of the virtual worlds that you have likely heard about that I'll mention today are explicitly games, such as uh, World of Warcraft or EVE Online, but because the connection between virtual worlds, games, and our humanity goes even deeper. Digital games seem omnipresent in the current moment and are garnering more and more attention from anthropologists as well as those in other fields, but much of the discussion of them in academia and amongst policymakers, not to mention the public at large, has been charged with normativity, with various parties touting their benefits or decrying their deleterious effects. But I am not here to tell you that digital games will save the world, that they will fix our reality or otherwise sing their praises. Nor am I here to tell you that computer games are the scourge of our youth. Games are, to anthropological eyes, a cultural form, like ritual. That is to say, they are a kind of form for a cultural event or happening that does something. Cultural forms are organized and sponsored and thick with meanings, practices, and materials. Of course, we do not ask of ritual whether it is our salvation or our downfall. Instead, we observe and explore the potency of a form that saturates our experience of nations, causes, and other collectivities. And so the truly intriguing questions anthropologists are poised to ask about another cultural form, that of the game, are deeper than the normative ones. We can aim for the heart of the matter and ask what accounts for games' power. When we consider what makes games powerful, we notice that their power resides in the way they tap into our very human tendency to notice patterns and tendencies, as well as departures from the norm, and the readiness we display to act amid such open complexity. Provided they are well designed, games grab our attention. Consider the stunning success of Foldit, an online game created not to teach science, but to do science, particularly appropriate to bring up here. 
In under three weeks, a few of its players solved a protein folding problem that for more than a decade had stumped not only expert scientists in biochemistry, but also their own extraordinarily powerful and expensive computers. The players determined the structure of a protein that replicates an AIDS-like virus found in monkeys, and so contributed substantially toward the design of new antiretroviral drugs. The fact that this took place through a game is not incidental. Games command our attention, and they incent our participation. They prompt performative action that may succeed or fail. A good game gets and keeps players who will focus their attention on its demands. And here, that was more efficient than relying on the far smaller numbers of very smart biochemists and their very expensive computers and software. What is at stake in our understanding of the power of games is no better illustrated than through these current examples, where games are produced to enlist participation, in this case, towards scientific research. So one of the things we have learned is that games are best understood as domains of contrived open-endedness. The good ones are patterned, but not so routinized that they are boring. They are also indeterminate, but not so chaotic as to produce anxiety or off-putting frustration. That is, games involve an array of both constraints and sources of unpredictability, contrived in such a way that we often wish to pursue some kind of mastery within them. Maybe not total control, but we'd like to be able to act and have our actions produce reliable effects. That's essentially what happens when a game draws us in. As such, this can be a valuable, even profitable balance to design. We are coming to understand that the power of games is tied very closely with the very indeterminacy that marks them, and it is an open-endedness that also marks our experience more broadly in the world, albeit there in a certainly unbounded fashion. So what are the constraints that we find in games and in the world? We have a troubling habit of lumping all of the constraints in games together under the word rules. But following the work of Lawrence Lessig and others, we can talk about the constraints that are part of how games are governed as falling into at least three categories. The first is the legalistic, or the rules themselves. There's a classic cover of Hoyle's Encyclopedia of Indoor Games, right? According to Hoyle's, it's a well-known expression for many, many years. And we tend to be a bit lazy and think that a game is the rules. We point at Hoyle's and we say, well, you know, that's poker. It's, it's in that book. But those are just the rules. Games are governed by several other kinds of things. They're also governed by architecture itself, by the materiality of the spaces in which they're played, with the materials with which they are played. So Yankee Stadium, you see, as any baseball fan knows, that the shape of that park exerts an enormous governing influence over the games that are played within it. And this, these are not rules. It is simply the architecture. It is the material constraints themselves that determine whether something is a foul ball or a home run to the short porch in right field, that kind of thing, which is why the Yankees tend to have left-handed power hitters, but I won't get into baseball. <laughs> now, the third kind of constraint that we can find in games is simply the conventional shared expectations. Our shared social conventions govern in games as well, and they are something different than rules. Here we have... Uh, third base coach for the Tampa Bay Rays uh, doing the signs, right? And stealing signs is something that happens in baseball. It's not against the rules, but there are certainly plenty of players who frown upon it. An even better example, actually my favorite, is from uh, soccer. In soccer, there's no provision for stopping the time of the game, for stopping the game when a player is injured. So, do you know what happens? 
Well, what happens is entirely governed by social convention. A player goes down. The opposing team, if they have the ball, will immediately kick it out of bounds so that the player can be attended to. Then when play resumes, the injured player team has the ball. They throw it in, but then they immediately kick it out of bounds so that it can then return to the team that kicked it out of bounds simply to achieve this stoppage of play. So games are constrained in all three of these ways, and they are each fundamentally different from the other. But games are not in any way reducible to their constraints, for the same reason that Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is not the written notes in the score he composed. Just as the symphony exists in the risky, open-ended venture of playing it, so does a game exist only in the process of playing. And in that process, almost always, quite intentionally, the game is just as much governed by certain sources of indeterminacy, often carefully contrived. These are the elements of games that contribute to their essential feature. Their outcome is unknown ahead of time. So what are these sources of contingency? I mean that in the philosophical sense. The contingent is that which is not necessary, right? that which didn't have to happen. So most obviously they include, first, pure randomness itself the stochastic contingency that impinges on our experience and which is evident in any game with a pair of dice, a spinner, or a well-shuffled deck of cards. Chess, for example, has one moment of stochastic contingency, the choice of who is black or white. Now, increasingly, however, such stochastic sources are behind the scenes in digital games and virtual worlds, cursed or perhaps blessed by World of Warcraft players as the RNG, the random number generator which can, can doom them or save them from one moment to the next. But games, secondly, can include the social guesswork that we must undertake when we speculate about others' points of view or about their resources. This is what I would call social contingency, and it's highlighted in poker. That is a game that is all about making guesses about other people's point of view and their resources. Now, economics got this very much right when they developed game theory. It's almost the only kind of contingency they consider, but it's, it's very much a part of games, is our guessing about other people and their point of view. The challenge of acting itself constitutes a third potential source of indeterminate outcomes of games. These are the actions quite obvious in athletic sports. These are the actions quite obvious in athletic sports which always run the risk of failure. We could call this performative contingency. You see, when he goes to shoot, that's a different kind of indeterminacy than that from rolling a dice, say. Right? or guessing about another's point of view. Sure, his defender maybe has to guess whether Ray Allen is going to post up, right, or whether he's going to pass, whether he's going to shoot. But at the end of the day, Ray Allen also has to execute the shot. He also has to make it or not make it. And finally, there is also the open question of meaning in games. As a game unfolds, there is always the possibility that what it means or what we mean by something within it will change. Oakland Raider fans remember this clearly in the tuck rule controversy of several years ago. It would take a good deal longer to talk about. Maybe we can cover that in question and answer. But we can fairly say that games bring together the very same kinds of possibilities and constraints that characterize our broader experience. You see, we're very used to it. We have a, we have a very long-standing habit of thinking of games as kind of set apart, different. They're some, some other arena from our lives, some place where nothing actually ever happens. But in fact, the reason games have the power they have is because they set in front of us the very same kind of constraints and sources of contingency that we face in our kind of unbounded, indeterminate, everyday lives. Making a game, then, is about creating the complex, implicit, contingent conditions wherein the texture of engaged human experience can happen. The implication here is significant. In understanding what makes a good game compelling, 
we would begin to understand something very close to the core of human experience in an always patterned, yet nonetheless contingent world. With this understanding of games and their relationship to our humanity put before us, if only briefly, we are prepared to turn to virtual worlds and what accounts for the way in which they also become domains wherein we are richly human. So what are virtual worlds? Well, by virtual worlds, we are usually, those of us who work in this field, referring to persistent and open-ended online domains where users can act with a relatively wide degree of freedom and in consequential ways. But this definition requires a bit of unpacking. Open-ended and persistent. Well, virtual worlds are persistent in the sense that if you leave them for a time, they are still there when you come back. And this is, this is vital. Now, for a long time, games had an end condition. They would end at a certain point. In human history, when we find games in the anthropological record, we find games that have some kind of win condition, some kind of end condition. But an interesting thing happened with games in the 60s and 70s, and it seems to have started with wargaming and then pencil and paper role-playing games, which is the creation of games that do not have end conditions. They just go on and on and on, but they are still games. They still have indeterminate outcomes all along the way. They have a complex range of objectives and measures of success, but they don't have a winner and a loser. Now that persistent quality of those games is, lends itself to the virtual worlds we see online. They also persist in that way. They go on and on and on. And with that move, games move just a step closer to everyday life. They already had so many of those rich elements that make our textured experience so, so engaging. But by removing that end condition, suddenly games became much more complex, much more, much more long-standing. And furthermore, by being persistent, they allow the effects of the actions within them to accumulate over time. They're durable. If you do something in Second Life or you do something in World of Warcraft, it has durable effects. It's not like it resets and everything you accomplished last week is somehow gone. It's true of a couple of things in World of Warcraft, but many of the things that you do, you have. The objects you acquire, you have. The social relationships that you acquire stay social relationships because the world stays in place. And the same thing is true of Second Life. So the persistence of these worlds is vital for understanding why they take on these very, very human stakes. But they're also open-ended, which is to say they aren't determinate. And that's where games come in, in a different way. In games, there isn't a set outcome at the beginning. And in virtual worlds as well, even in one like Second Life, there isn't a set outcome. There isn't a determinate conclusion to everything. You don't know what will happen. And again, taking the game design as their starting point to accomplish this in these worlds, these virtual worlds nudge themselves ever closer to something like our broader human experience. They're persistent. They're open-ended. Furthermore, they afford us a wide degree of freedom of action and the possibility of failure. You know, early on, virtual worlds were text-based. It started in the mid-70s. Uh, Richard Bartle started Mud One. Uh, and it's always fascinating to hear Richard talk about the early virtual worlds. We can call them virtual worlds, but within them, you could really only act in one way, which is by typing something, right? You could write. The scope of human action was restricted to language typed in onto a computer screen. Well, that's still quite a bit of freedom, but it's nothing like the kind of uh, degree of freedom that 
people have who participate in virtual worlds today. They can type in several different forums and several different contexts, all within the game world itself, private messages, uh, guild chat lines, public chat lines. All of that is just the text. But most of their activity within these worlds is with their avatar and a, a complex interface arrangement which allows them to move a virtual body about in the world and accomplish many, many things with it. I knew something was interesting from an anthropological point of view about World of Warcraft. When I was playing it with some friends and we were all grouped together in what's called a raid, it was a 10-person raid, and we're trying to accomplish something difficult. We're all in there, you know, everyone who plays these games says this, they say, I was in there, you know, even though someone who doesn't play the game sort of says, wait, that's your avatar. But it happens very, very quickly. You identify with this avatar because you can do so much with it. Right? It is how you express yourself, and we identify with something through which we can express ourselves widely. Well, I was in, this, I was in the, the game, it was early on in my joining this game, or really having any experience with this kind of virtual world, and uh, we're all standing about to take on this you know, very, very powerful enemy, it's called a boss. And in World of Warcraft, you have these different kinds of races that your character can be. You know, one of them is really huge, it's called a tauren. It's this kind of bull man, like a minotaur kind of. It's gigantic, really, in the game world. But you could also play something relatively small, you know, like a, like a, there's a the troll, much shorter than, than the tauren, or the orc, for example, or the, or the, uh, the undead characters that were taken. So anyway, we're all standing there, and we're kind of grouped up, right? And I saw someone playing along with us in our group, and I, I noticed that she was behind me, that her character was behind me. I was standing in front because of the job I had to do, and I was playing one of these really big characters, this torrent, right? So I'm standing in front, and I noticed I did something, and I only noticed it after I did it. I took a step out of the way to make sure that she could see. Right? <laughs> and I didn't even notice I did it. Now, when that kind of action is possible, then we are inhabiting a space in a very deeply practical way. A lot of people talk about that as immersion. I'm going to stay away from that word for, for reasons that are too long to go into right now. But we become deeply involved in these spaces. We identify with them. And that's because the wide degree of freedom that they afford us invites us to act meaningfully. But we also act meaningfully because we can fail. The possibility of failure, which is another component from games, is crucial for making anything meaningful in human society. I mean, you think about it. In your course of your everyday life, when you set about to do things, what makes things meaningful? What makes something at stake in some social situation where you, you arrive on a scene with people that you maybe know kind of well, new coworkers perhaps, you want to impress them? Well, the whole point that makes that such a fraught condition is that you might stumble, you might fail. That's what makes our actions valuable or meaningful, is the possibility of failure. So virtual worlds take all of these elements from games, this contrived open-endedness, this possibility of failure, this wide uh, degree of freedom of action, and they combine them to create an environment that's so complex and so open-ended and so rich that why would we be surprised that things start to be at stake in that world. Social relationships start to form that are valuable. Sometimes we make the mistake, maybe it has something to do with the fact that people sit at a computer screen and seem to play as an individual. We, we tend to think 
of our players as individuals, and I'm going to return to that point a little later on. Sometimes we make that mistake of thinking that people are, are only in these games as individuals, but they can be very, very social spaces. And all of that has to do with the accumulation of valuable things within these worlds. In short, the stakes are real and substantial because persistent and open-ended environments that allow for a wide range of durable but risky action provide us all the pieces for the generation of meaningful distinctions. Virtual worlds can do this because they rely heavily on computer game design and programming to create virtual worlds that either are games or are game-like in their wide array of constraints and possibilities. That is a very big reason why these spaces are both meaningful and consequential for their participants. But I, I want to conclude uh, with a kind of second section here. Uh, what I've tried to do up to this point is give you a sense of the connection point between games, virtual worlds, and our very humanity, why they become spaces that have something at stake within them. But when we look at these virtual worlds, we notice one other thing about them, which is maybe not so surprising once we, once we say it out loud, and that is virtual worlds as pieces of our software architecture, as something created by people somewhere, they actually display the cultural attitudes of the people who make them. So while everything I said in a general sense is true about games and virtual worlds and, and our humanity, in any given case, when we look at virtual worlds, we can find some surprising things about what, say, the designers believe the human really is. So I do want to talk about uh, one example, and, and I think maybe it would be best to speak about it in terms of Second Life, so I'll skip the World of Warcraft section. So this is a, a picture from a computer game called Unreal Tournament, often played online. Uh, but it's not one of the massively multiplayer online games or virtual worlds that I'm talking about. This is a game that only supports a small number of players at a time. There's two reasons I want, I want to show this to you. First, I want you to notice the first-person perspective that the player of this game has. The gun is right there. And we can even see part of the player's arm. Or more precisely, that of the player's avatar from whose point of view this screenshot was taken. The resolution of the image is high. The movements, we may rightly imagine, are fast-paced. We may also note the apparent physics of the world. There is a kind of gravity, overcome in a limited way with jetpacks, and objects would appear to have the ability to bounce off each other and so on. There is also a small map in the upper right, which gives a top-down view of the scene. From noticing this, we can imagine a bit about what it might be like to participate in this game. It calls for a lot of practiced mastery, which must be executed very rapidly. The targeting circle in the middle, we can guess, must be very important. We may even just from the image surmise that to participate in this game calls for the rapid mastery not only of movement and of visual and perhaps oral information, but also of the targeting system itself. In this case, as in most first-person shooters, and that's the kind of game this is, the mouse and the keyboard each handle part of this effort. One moves with the W, A, S, and D keys, plus others, and one targets with the mouse. So this is a particular kind of game. One that we might say demands practice, embodied, individual mastery of a complex and contingent, that is to say, open-ended environment. This is what many, many digital games are very good at doing, contriving a complex open-endedness for a single user to master. Now, the second reason I wanted to start with this screenshot is because this kind of game was the unofficial office game of Linden Lab, makers of Second Life, when I was there in 2005. Toward the end of any given workday, in the dark, open office arrangement that they favored, one might begin to hear these scattered whoops and expletives of Lindens, that's employees of Linden Lab, playing on real tournament or tribes or similar games. So I want you to keep in mind the practical demands that this kind of game makes on the player as I talk a bit further about Second Life. 
turns out that games such as Second Life or Virtual Worlds owe a lot to games like this, not the least of which is a peculiar conception of what being human is at all. Now, Second Life is quite similar to World of Warcraft, actually, in some ways, although gamers might groan to hear me say that, but with some important differences. There's no fundamental or shared game objective in Second Life, and there's much more scope for making things and doing things. So let's just see what people in Second Life make. That, after all, seems to be the difference between it and World of Warcraft. In World of Warcraft, the players can accomplish very little durable effects on the game world itself. Things reset, you can't build buildings, you can't, there's many things you can't do. In Second Life, it seems to be the polar opposite of that. Second Life users begin by making themselves. That's the first thing you do. This is a very old interface here, but it's still true today. You begin uh, your avatar life in Second Life by making yourself. And this is a, a very complicated, complicated job. After all, you can control down to the pixel, things like the width of the top of your nose versus the bottom of your nose or the shape of your jaw. There are many, many different little windows that you could check for different parts of your body. And all of this is what you are prompted to do when you first start Second Life. You have to make yourself. And of course, when you make yourself, you do that in full knowledge that people are going to be looking at you, right? the question of success or failure in even making your avatar becomes very potent in Second Life. You are exposed to the gaze of other players in this world. So in a certain sense, uh, you are tested on that. And in fact, early on in Second Life, they had a rating system. So that if you were a user of Second Life, anyone you met, any other user uh, in, in avatar uh, that you met in the world, they call them residents, you could rate on three scales. You could score them for their avatar and for their skills as a builder and their, and their skills socially as they interacted with you. Right? Notice that, that idea of mastery, of individual mastery here without the broader game objectives, but still the notion that people are succeeding or they're failing performatively in this space. As well, they, they can build very complex structures. This one originally, when it was, I don't know if it's still in Second Life, but these tattered tarps would actually waft in, in the breeze. It was quite a, quite a nice effect. So in essence, Second Life is supposed to make itself as a virtual world. And that seems to set it apart from World of Warcraft in many ways. But what I want to do is return to this question of individual mastery from that, that shot from that game, right? That person with the gun, right? The, the individual and the complex system. Because in Second Life, it turns out, the same assumptions are in place that people are resolutely individuals. At least this was the case for quite a long time. In very important ways, Linden Lab imagined its users as human in a particular way, as fundamentally individuals who would seek to creatively express themselves by creating the content of the game that is Second Life. And I, I interviewed Philip Rosedale, who was the founder of Linden Lab, and, and I, I asked him a question. Did you set out to make a digital society? And I got a very surprising answer, really, a, one that for an anthropologist kind of throws you for a loop. He said, I was always struck by the expressive, that's that uh, expressive individualism component again. I was always struck by the expressive and not so much societal element. I didn't go in feeling like we were going to make people's lives better, but I did go into it feeling like none of it was interesting unless there were a lot of people involved. He didn't want to make a society, but it wouldn't be interesting unless a lot of people were involved. It's a very unusual comment, but it makes sense from a certain imagining of the human. 
that marks not only Linden Lab, but a number of other high-tech companies. Uh, the idea is about aggregate individual performance and mastery underwrite the logic of a world like Second Life and its picture of the human. And we can look at other examples here, uh, something like uh, Drupal, for, uh, for example, or Metaplace or Google. Uh, each in their own way, they depend upon an idea that, well, if we put technology in the hands of individuals, it's not that some of them will get together and others won't, and some social groups will, will form and others won't, and some will exclude and those institutions will build. No, the idea often is if we put technology in the hands of people, individuals, then individually they'll express themselves. They'll just express themselves in an enlightened way with that technology. And in aggregate, this is the liberal component here in the classical sense, in aggregate what they do will generate social goods that we like. And you have terms like crowdsourcing, right? The wisdom of crowds are founded upon a particular imagining of what human beings want to do. And the imagining fits perfectly with making use of game designers and having that be a profession that we have today. Because game designers are really good at getting people to engage a complex system and seek to master it. Well, you connect that to uh, an ideology, uh, essentially, that believes that, well, if we just make technology available to a lot of people, then we'll get aggregate effects that we like. And I'll probably leave it there, but you see Stuart Brand and the Whole Earth Catalog, Norbert Wiener, as well as Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters. And in the post-war United States era, right now, we have a particular idea about games and complex systems and individuals, not really very social at all. And a lot of our virtual worlds are still struggling with that imagining of the human as people persist in being social in them nonetheless. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. Science and the City will be back in the new year. For now, you can search our podcast archives online at www.scienceandthecity.org or shoot us an email anytime at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. See you next time.